Hi, everyone. Welcome back to day two of the Green Summit. I'm your host, Dylan Welch, and today I'm very excited to kick things off with a good friend of mine and overall amazing person who's going to share some awesome information today. So let's give it away to Ellen Spooner. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for having me. My name is Ellen Spooner. I am a marine biologist and a science storyteller. Um, so thank you so much, Dylan, for having me in your green.org summit. I was so inspired by all of the speakers yesterday and really saw the many different ways that people can get involved in sustainability. So today I'm going to talk to you guys about why you should be optimistic about the future of our ocean. And I'm going to give you the takeaway points right away because these days nobody has attention spans at all. So if you take nothing else away from my presentation, I hope that, you know, we are already making a positive change in the future of our ocean. I hope that you feel inspired to take action Know that when you do take action, it does make a difference and that you continue to find and share stories of ocean optimism. And so because I'm a science storyteller, I'm going to start off by telling you a story. And this story begins in Cabo Pulmo, Mexico, and it's about a fishing community that went from losing almost all of its fish to becoming a highly desired scuba diving destination. Cabo Pulmo was considered a treasure of the Baja California Peninsula. The famous American author John Steinbeck wrote about the reefs, their teeming life, and their electric colors in his 1951 book, The Log from the Sea of Cortez. And what you can see pictured here are some of the local fishermen and some of the fish that they caught. So as you can see, there was really a bountiful amount of fish there, and they were huge. What you see here are some of the the groupers. Um, and so this place was not only known for its beauty, but also for the fish. Fishermen from all across Mexico would travel just to catch what this place had to offer. And local fishermen not only relied on this fish for a source of income, but also for their food. It provided the community with a healthy source of protein. But then, as you often hear, it all changed. In the early 1990s, after decades of overfishing, the reefs in Cabo Pulmo were no longer the colorful filled play playgrounds of fish that they used to be. People who lived in the community took notice, of course, because that was how they were getting their livelihoods. Fishermen would go out all day on boats as some of the ones that you see pictured here and come back with nothing. So the community got really worried. So, this part of the story is not new. I'm sure you guys have heard about overfishing from all over the world, but what you don't often hear about is this next part of the story. One fisherman named Mario Castro decided to try and make a difference. His idea was that if you stop fishing in all of the ocean, except for a tiny sliver, just so you could feed your family in the local community, maybe the marine ecosystem and the fish might eventually bounce back. He started by convincing his own family to stop fishing. This was a difficult decision because the Castro family had been living in Cabo Pulmo for over a hundred years. And so they had a really unique connection with the ocean and the community. And as I mentioned, they relied on it for their income and for their food. So the family decided, all right, let's 
let's take a break, let's stop fishing and, and see what happens. And then they decided to also approach the whole community. Mind you, this is a fishing village. Like this whole village relies on fishing for their income. So this was no easy task. It meant that the community had to change their way of life to put the prospect of long-term sustainability ahead of short-term economic loss. But eventually they were able to convince the whole community to stop fishing as well. And with the support from all of the community and fishers, they actually were able to lobby their government and successfully secured protected status for the reef. In 1995, Mexico State of Baja California Sur officially established Cabo Pumo National Park. It was a marine protected area and it covers 27 square miles of the Cabo Pumo Reef. Okay, so the community did a great job in stopping fishing but what were they going to do about income? Like I mentioned, this is how they got their livelihood. Well, Castro had an idea for that too. He had a plan that was to try and make Kalkumo into a scuba diving destination. Now, this was also going to be a very difficult feat because nobody really knew about Cabo Pumo. It was mostly the fishing community that would go there, but now all the fish were gone. So in order to address that, Mario went to a local town nearby, Cabo San Lucas, where he learned how to scuba dive. After a few years, he got his dive master's license, and then he eventually came back to his community and taught his community how to become dive masters as well. Mario opened the first dive shop, and that's what you see here, in Cabo Pulmo, and since then, the diving community has flourished. After over 20 years of protection, the ocean there has returned to a thriving marine community. And 20 years may seem like a long time for us, but in terms of the ecosystem, that's a really short period of time. And so it's really incredible that you've seen this return. I mean, what you see pictured here is a giant bait ball of big-eyed jacks, which are similar to tuna. And you see Professor Octavio Alberto. He is actually a marine biologist who was a part of the group of scientists at the University of Baja California Sur, who worked in setting up this no fish zone. And they eventually, as I mentioned, were able to petition the Mexican government to save the area and declare it as a national park. So this was really a success because every type of fish had returned from the small herbivores or what are fish that eat plants, to the mid-sized carnivores, which are fish and other species that eat meat, to the top predators, such as whale sharks, which you see pictured here, massive rays, humpback whales, sea turtles, ospreys, all of these species were finally returning back to this marine ecosystem. And the reef became a refuge. Locals were saying that they are even seeing species that they had never seen before come back to this area. The biomass of top predators had increased tenfold. By all measures, this protected area was a success. And it was not only a success for the ecosystem, but it has also become a success for the community as well. Castro's family runs two snorkel and dive tour companies that take multiple boats out every day and they're full of tourists. And the whole community is seeing that same sort of success. The tourism industry has taken off so much in this area that the income rates in this town are well above the average of income across Mexico. And the park became so successful that in 2005, it was named UNESCO World Heritage Site. And then in 2008, it became a Ramsar International Wetland Site. 
So I'm trying to plan a trip there with me and a couple of friends. So if you want to go, let's go. But the reason I want to share this story is because it's an excellent example of how community took initiative on themselves to turn their local economy into a more sustainable practice, specifically something that not only helps the ecosystem return, but helps their economy and their way of life also become sustainable. And so this is a great example of what I call an ocean conservation success story or ocean optimism. And actually my story into marine biology also began in Mexico. I grew up in Arizona and my family would take vacations to Mexico to the beach all the time. And I don't have a picture of it, but I will never forget this one very specific moment where my dad took me out on a kayak we saw a pot of dolphins off in the distance. We're like, oh my God, that's, that's so cool. Let's try and get closer. So we were like paddling, 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 trying to get closer and closer to these dolphins, but they kept swimming away. So eventually we're like, all right, we'll just enjoy them from the distance. So right as I went to set my paddle down, a dolphin swam right underneath my kayak. And 10-year-old Ellen was like so ecstatic. I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. I want to do this for the rest of my life. And that's where I got interested in studying marine biology. So then I went to the University of Arizona where I studied ecology and evolutionary biology. And then I went to the University of Michigan uh, where I studied fisheries in the Great Lakes. And that's what you see pictured here on the right is uh, me holding a muscalunge, which is like a large predatory fish. And they're common throughout the Great Lakes. And I studied um, their diet. But while I was working on my thesis at the University of Michigan, I realized I was spending all this time collecting data, analyzing it and writing it up just to put it in a scientific article that would be published. And then probably only a few other scientists that are also interested in that species would read. But I was like, this is really cool stuff that we're doing. Like more people need to know about this. And I saw that across my colleagues who I was working with at Michigan as well. So that's when I was like, okay, how can I tell these stories? And I was fortunate enough to get the Canals Marine Policy Fellowship. And that fellowship brings people with marine science backgrounds into the federal government to do science, policy, and communication. And so you see a cohort of some of my colleagues when I did that on the left. And then on the right is um, Kathy Sullivan, who is like such a badass woman. She was the first American woman to fly in space. She used to work with NASA. She was an astronaut with NASA. And then she became the administrator of NOAA. And that's where I got to meet her. Um, and so in my position, I split my time with NOAA and the Smithsonian Natural History Museum. And while I was at the Smithsonian, I got to meet another badass woman who is pictured here on the right. She's Dr. Nancy Knowlton. Dr. Nancy Knowlton was the Smithsonian's Sant Chair Emirata of Marine Science. She was also a professor at Yale and is the founding director of the Center for Marine Biodiversity and Conservation here at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. So she's an all around badass. And in 2007, she was featured in Vanity Fair's Earth Superstar list. And that's what you see pictured on the screen in the background here. I just thought that was so cool. And the picture was taken here in San Diego and now I live here. So it's just everything comes full cycle. But she introduced me to this hashtag ocean optimism movement. Most of the news around the ocean talks about how the corals are bleaching, the ice is melting, there's all these negative things happening. 
And all of those things are happening. And the purpose of environmentalists telling those stories is to emphasize the urgency and enormity of the environmental issues that we're currently facing. But in sharing those stories, they inadvertently create a sense of hopelessness for the future of our planet. I mean, I'm sure I don't have to tell you guys that, like you probably watch the news and feel that yourself. According to researchers at Columbia University's Center for Research on Environmental Decisions, there are limits to the amount of concerns that one can have at one time. They call this a finite pool of worry. Overburdening people's capacity with too much doom and gloom leads to emotional numbing. And by bombarding people with bad news about the ocean that feels too large to surmount, people often tune out and shut down. I mean, once again, like I'm sure you guys have all felt that at one point in time. And so while it's true that fear-based messaging can be effective for simple and short-term changes and solutions, it's not as effective for long-term and complex issues like the ones that we're facing today. Researchers at Yale Project on Climate Change Communication found that our beliefs, emotions, and interests all influence how we respond to environmental issues. And they found out emotions, it turns out, are contagious. We can become hopeful from the hopeful actions of others. And they said we don't even have to be face-to-face. -face. I mean, I know I feel more hopeful after the speakers that we had yesterday, and we're unfortunately all still on Zoom and weren't able to be in person. Um, they also found that unlike mainstream media, where bad news dominates environmental headlines, hope travels faster than doom on social media. So given that, you know, almost everybody these days has social media accounts and good news spreads really fast, there's a really great opportunity there. And so from that, Dr. Nancy Knowlton, who's pictured here, uh, Zoe Richards, who's a scientist at the Australian Museum, and Heather Caldwell, the Zoological Society of London, launched the hashtag Ocean Optimism Movement in June of 2014 on World Ocean Day. Since they launched that, they've reached over 74 million Twitter users, and they continue to inspire an outpouring of marine conservation for our ocean. I encourage you to check out some of these stories on Twitter. You can find out about really awesome things such as um, a new national marine sanctuary in the Galapagos Islands, which is protecting the world's largest concentration of sharks. Green sea turtles in Florida and Mexico that are no longer endangered because of our successful conservation efforts and much, much more. The ocean optimism movement has since grown to also become Earth optimism. So while I was working at the Smithsonian, I was fortunate enough to help out uh, in 2017 with the Smithsonian's first ever Earth Optimism Summit, which is what you see pictured here in Washington, DC. This summit, similar to the one today, brought together leaders, practitioners, artists, environmentalists, people from the industry all together with the goal of sharing solutions in conservation. They were bringing what were the best minds, the boldest experiments, innovative ideas, what were they so that we could all come together, share those ideas and address climate change and the other environmental issues that we're currently facing. Last year's 2020 Earth Optimism Summit had to be virtual, of course, because of the pandemic, but they still reached over 55,000 devices and had people to tune in from over 170 countries. The hashtag Earth Optimism has reached over 1 billion people. So it's just like a really awe-inspiring movement that's happening. 
So after I got all this inspiration from the ocean optimism movement, I decided I wanted to go back to NOAA so that I could actually see the direct impact of my work. So if you're unfamiliar with NOAA, the way that I often explain it is NOAA is like NASA, but for the ocean. It's the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. So if you go whale watching or if you eat seafood or if you check the weather on your phone, you can thank NOAA. NOAA touches almost every American's life or one, in one way or another. NOAA is responsible for managing all ocean animals that are protected under the Threatened and Endangered Species Act. NOAA manages fisheries in U.S. federal waters, and NOAA collects weather data that's used to inform the apps that we all check to see what the weather is. So an example of a project that I'm working on with NOAA is an effort to reduce the number of whales that are getting entangled in fishing gear off the West Coast. And that's what you see pictured here. You see a whale who was previously entangled in fishing gear. And so what often happens is fishermen will leave a trap at the bottom of the ocean attached to a rope attached to a buoy so that they can come back and find the trap later on. But the whales will sometimes not see it and they'll get entangled in it and then it'll cause injuries to them like the ones that you see here on his tail. And in worst case scenarios, the traps will be so heavy that the whales can't reach the surface and they can no longer breathe and eventually will be fatal for the whales. In between 2014 and 2019, NOAA Fisheries confirmed 163 large whale entanglements off the coast of California, Washington, and Oregon. And so that was an unusual spike because by comparison, from 2008 to 2013, only 64 whale entanglements were confirmed. And so because, as I mentioned earlier, NOAA is responsible for protecting marine mammals, NOAA scientists had to get to work to understand what was happening. We found that it was mostly humpback whales that were getting entangled, but they also found a gray, blue, fin, and minke whales were getting entangled as well. And one fisherman that was involved in this effort to try and address this issue shared a quote with me that I really want to share with you guys because it was like reminded me why I do what I do. He said, I hope that what comes out of this is the public becomes aware of the fact that fishermen are your true conservationists. We're the guys making our living out on the water in unbelievably harsh conditions because we love the ocean and we want to protect it. And so I just want to let you guys know that NOAA scientists, fishermen, and state managers are all working together to try and address these problems. So back in 2016, one of our NOAA scientists was studying the California Current Ecosystem Status Report, which is a report that's put out by the California Current Integrated Ecosystem Assessment Program, which is the program that I work for. Um, and so while he was studying this report, he realized that it was a unique combination of environmental variable and changes that led to this increase in whale entanglements. So some of them are what you see pictured here. It was changes in sea surface temperature, changes in prey distribution, like the, the krill that you see here, they were in different locations where they had been previously, and changes in uh, human activities. But the issue was back then when the scientists figured this out, he didn't have a way of communicating that with the fishermen. So what we've done is created an online tool where fishermen can find and access all of the latest environmental information in an effort to try and reduce the amount of whales that will get entangled. Because 
as I mentioned, the fishermen care about this too. Like they, they want to help protect the whales, but also they're losing fishing gear when these entanglements happen. And so this effort of scientists and fishermen working together is just one example of the many ways that NOAA is making a difference in helping make us a more sustainable future for our ocean. Since NOAA was established, we've rebuilt 47 stocks of fish, and some of them were rebuilt ahead of time. And part of that is due to sacrifices that have been made, just like Mario Castro and the community in Cabo Pulmo made, fishermen in the US are also making sacrifices to have a more sustainable future. They're switching up the gear that they're using so that it's more effective. They're abiding by fish closures when that's needed. They're, they're making a lot of sacrifices to ensure that we have a sustainable source of seafood as well. And so my vision for the future, I truly believe that we can have a more sustainable future with the ocean. The ocean is important for all life on earth. I just moved to San Diego a year ago and I noticed this like really magical moment right before the sun sets when it seems like everything pauses from surfers in the waves to birds in the sky. It feels like everybody just takes a second to breathe in this magical ocean. And so if that doesn't inspire you, I don't know what will. Um, and so, as I mentioned at the beginning of this talk, I hope that if you take nothing away, you know that we are making a difference in how we're conserving the ocean. And I hope that you continue to share ocean optimism stories. And that's why in February of 2002, I'm going to be launching the Ocean Optimism Podcast with green.org. And so I continue to stay engaged. I invite you to stay engaged in the conversation. Let's keep this going. Follow me on Twitter. Here's my email. And with that, I'll say thank you. Ellen, that was amazing. Thank you so much for uh, sharing. Honestly, you have such a cool job. <laughs> <laughs> That's so Thanks. cool. I feel very um, fortunate. <laughs> yeah, and it's just nice, uh, you know, it's nice when you share sort of the success stories and the optimism because it's very easy, especially when you you hear the news and, uh, you know, all that stuff. Like, it's very negative sometimes. So it's always good to hear positive stories, especially positive stories about um, the ocean. So thank you for sharing. Very excited, as Ellen said, that we're going to be kicking off the Ocean Optimism podcast because uh, there's just there's so much good information um, that needs to be shared about the the ocean. So, Ellen, thank you for joining us and kicking things off for the very first presentation of the day of day two of the Green Summit.